0: Welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking, what next? I'm Christina Patterson, and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape, and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Matthew Syed. Matthew was the number one table tennis player in the UK and an Olympian before becoming a journalist, author and international speaker. He's the best-selling author of Bounce, Black Box Thinking, You Are Awesome and Rebel Ideas. He's an award-winning sports writer and columnist and currently writes a column for the Sunday Times. He's also co-host of the hugely successful BBC podcast Flintop, Savage and the Ping Pong Guy. I talked to Matthew just as we were coming out of lockdown. He talked about adapting his work to a semi-virtual world, what he has learnt as a son of an immigrant, the challenges of AI, and the need for diverse thinking to get us out of the pandemic. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Matthew. It only took a pandemic to get us talking to each other again.
1: It's been it's been too long, and you know, I just to. Let the person, the people, the person, the people, <laughs> tuning into this, because there are clearly many thousands. Um, we obviously got to know each other doing the Sky News paper review, and we got to know each other personally, because one of the things I loved about doing the review with you, and we haven't done it enough recently is in between the first hit at 10.30 and the second hit at 11.30. We'd have a fantastic uh, natter in the green room, and I have missed those terribly, and also the fact we've been socially with our partners. So it's great to catch up now, and I'm really looking forward to the chat.
0: Well, absolutely. And, you know, we weren't allowed to talk to each other because of, of Brexit um, for so long. And now it's like Brexit. What was that? Unfortunately, it isn't the case. Of what was that, as we will soon discover? But um, but yes, absolutely. I, I missed that. But uh, I, I'll move on from the love in. But um, it hasn't been the same with anyone else is all I'll say. <laughs> anyway, um, we're at the end of lockdown or at least national lockdown and on the cusp of the great unlocking Which aspects of the relaxation, if any, are you looking forward to most?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm very much looking forward to seeing my friends. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but the friends that I built up in Richmond, where I live in southwest London, I met them at a pub. And so I'm quite Mm -hmm. a, uh, I have a a local and I miss the guys very, very much. I'm also looking forward to going out, get an occasional restaurant with with my wife. Uh, Obviously, with two young kids, uh, getting them back into school is very, very important. And just being able to mingle more freely with family and friends. I I think probably the same as most people. I think we're very uh, social animals and I have missed. Funnily enough, I had my first meeting yesterday. Since the since wow, COVID. in real
0: life, in real and life,
1: Christina, I've been wearing you know, as I speak to you now, I'm wearing tracksuit bottoms and, and a t shirt. And I went in, I thought, Oh my goodness, what am I gonna wear to this? And I put on, believe it, a suit. I put on, oh. you know, I very rarely do it, but I put on a suit and I got on the tube for the first time in ages. And I actually. Oh. Felt quite good about it, and and the newspaper that I work for, the Times and the Sunday Times, they did a staff survey, and most people, even in the future with the option of virtual working, they they I think almost everyone wants to come into the office at least two or three days a week. Mm-hmm. I think people do miss it.
0: Definitely, I'm not at all surprised by that. I think, I think, uh, I mean, I've worked from home on my own for years, and um, I'm a very I'm very much an extrovert, and the thing I miss most about having a job is being in an office. I I personally wouldn't want to go into an office every day, but I do think nobody particularly wants to sit at home all day every day on their own, even if they've got family around. Families all very well, but you know, not for kind of twenty-four-seven forever. Um, So I do think that's a very important part of work that we've been missing out on, and um, I I hope that that will be safely and successfully recaptured but obviously there are there are safety anxieties and um particularly in terms of the kind of mixing with people which uh, yeah. okay so they've removed the uh two meters to one meter but that's just a, a calculation of risk it's clearly not a kind of yeah. um edict from on high so we'll have to see what happens um at the moment the you know, I mean, at the moment so
1: i'm interrupted. what am i doing here? no no like, no, no carry on carry on i thought you were doing but i was just going to say you might be interested i had a, a a survey one of the emerging surveys and i think i think it was asking a whole range of businesses in ireland um who had polled their staff and it was a higher proportion of women who were very keen to get back into the office, mm. which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, my understanding is that women have, have disproportionately taken on a lot of the childcare, as, you know, I suppose p- p- women listening in will be surprised by this. Mm. And therefore felt a great deal more demand on their time and bandwidth because of the lockdown, working from home, having to juggle all sorts of other demands. And so there's actually a higher proportion of women very keen to come back, not not every day back in the office, but just to come in a couple of three times a week, as you were saying, just to have that um, outlet beyond the home. And I, 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 can, I can really relate to that.
0: Mm. And have you learnt anything about yourself that surprised you during this time?
1: I don't think any well it's a good question Christina I think not, nothing that completely shocked me uh, about myself or, or about you know the family I think I've definitely learned that there's a sociability um, quite deep inside of me and I guess in lots of people And I have missed very much the sort of physical intimacy of friends uh, of family um, and of, of work colleagues and it, it's it's a curious thing um, uh you kind of miss it in in such a deep and and visceral way, uh, and that has a, a been an interesting realization. But I don't think I've I've discovered anything about me that that was particularly um, shocking. Mm. Um, what about what about you, you? By the way, have you, have, you, um, have you learned anything?
0: That's a very good question. I hadn't thought of having it reflected back to me. Um, <laughs> no, I well, that's
1: unfair. It's a typical genre. No, no, no not off? at all, well, not well. at
0: all. Um, I I have already learned through spending some years working from home as quite an extreme extrovert that I love other people's company and I've really missed that so, but I've already done my missing of that in a way and so I've learned less during this time mm. than I have done in the previous years but normally I'm someone who likes to be out you know most nights and I've adjusted quite well to that. I think one of the things we all learn is how quickly we adjust to new circumstances in a way. And um, I could happily go on like this for a while, but certainly not forever. And in fact, I'm at uh, Anthony's house in Northamptonshire and um, I went back to my flat. I wasn't, it was illegal of me for me to sleep in my own bed for some time. And, um, I nearly wept with joy seeing the traffic and the roadworks and the double-decker buses. <laughs> and yeah. when I went back to my yeah. flat, and um, and when I went to my flat, and I thought, God, I really miss my old life. I hadn't sort of allowed myself to, but when I saw it, I really missed it.
1: Yes, yeah, I I can relate to that completely. On on the tubes yesterday, uh, walking out at London Bridge Station, I went up for a meeting at the at the Times, and yeah, it was there is something wonderful about the mechanics of a city, kind of that glorious unpredictability of different people with different ideas, working in different buildings, going to and from work. I've always Mm. felt very comfortable in in a city. Um, And even though you have your own neighbourhood, you know, I I live in southwest London, and you have friendships and sustained friendships, there is something very um, evocative about about a city. And it has been quite surreal to see these great cities kind of Grind to a halt for, for a number of weeks and months. Mm,
0: mm. Now, you normally pack more into a working week than anyone else I know writing several columns and pieces, writing books, doing board work, doing your podcast, broadcasting, and of course, traveling around the world speaking and consulting. Clearly, the traveling hasn't been possible, and of course, that will have, um, I imagine, enormous implications for the business you run with your wife. Um, how dramatically has your work life changed in this time?
1: Well, it has changed quite a bit. I mean, so we um, uh, run a, a, a sort of consulting business, and a lot of it is about improving the culture of organisations. Um, obviously, when the crisis hit, it made it very difficult to engage with with our clients. But we, you know, you said a bit earlier that we adapt quite fast, and I think we have started to modify the way we work. I think probably like you, we started looking at uh, virtual um, uh, presentations, keynotes, conferencing and other things of that kind. Um, And with our clients, we also found quite an interesting kind of division between those who were just very upset about how the world had changed unpredictably and the others who started really looking very creatively for new solutions about how they'd engage with clients, how they'd share information and other things of that kind. So my my hope is that we'll come through this okay. But I think the first sort of week or so, there there was quite a lot of anxiety.
0: Mm, mm. And do you have the impression, because obviously we, we don't know what will happen in terms of a vaccine when conferences will be possible and safe again, do you have the sense that many of your clients or many businesses are kind of preparing to adapt well in the short to medium term by putting most things online?
1: I think, um, I mean, it's a mix depending on context. My sense is that there will be uh, some return to normality within, say, 12 months or so, uh, either because of vaccine or antivirals, um, uh, and that therefore the social distancing that we'll still have in place uh, in the coming weeks will move back to what was the uh, what life was like you know a year or so ago, I hope that's what happened. so I think what businesses are doing for what it's worth is they're trying to um it's sort of been an impetus to change to a certain extent. Do we need people coming in every day into the office? Can we have a new way of working even without social distancing that is more effective that enables people to have a better work life balance? It will free. This will probably free up office space. So, how do we repurpose offices? Yeah. Um, so, I think there's a whole um, lot of creative thinking now about what the world will look like, even when we get back to normality, um, and that, and of course, what it will look like in this transitional phase.
0: Mm. Yes, I mean, you sounded relatively sanguine about the adjustments that you're making to your business, and clearly, you're a very. Both you and Cathy, very creative, innovative uh, thinkers and therefore probably, you know, kind of more able and willing to adapt than most. But even so, if you run an international business based on public speaking, that's likely to cause quite a shock to the system to know that a lot of that is grinding to the halt, uh, grinding to a halt temporarily. Um, How would you, in terms of challenges you've had to face in your life, how would you rate this one?
1: Uh, definitely a big challenge a huge challenge i mean you you're right on the speaking side i mean anyone who do, who delivers uh, speeches presentations or any uh, organisations that broker speeches have had to really get their skates on to improve the way they do this virtually and mm. the technology is improving but there is something i think you know that you get from a being in the physical presence of other people the chemistry um the sort of the flow of information, the Q&A. So I think it will be interesting to see what, what happens in the sort of, sort of near term. I think it's also interesting for companies when they do their annual... I mean, often people fly from different parts of the world to an annual conference for a, mm. a big multinational company. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they what what people decide to do in the future, whether they do that digitally, whether they have more regional meetings, more localism in the way that companies think about innovation and change. I'm still, mm. I'm to be honest, I'm still sort of teasing some of this through in my own mind. Course, and I know that a lot of all the companies mm. are too, but I mm. I, I think you, I think the world will look different for business and for government and the forums that we use to take collective decisions. I think that will all uh change to a large extent um once we come out of this.
0: Yeah, unless you're Jacob Rees-Mogg, of course, in which case, in which case you have ludicrous congers running, sneaking around the House of Commons. But um, but yes, <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of the chemistry, I I couldn't agree more. And I think many of us, frankly, are sick to death of staring at a screen so I can't imagine for a start without you know prying into your business model or anyone else's I can't imagine that people are prepared to pay the kind of fees to have you staring at yeah. a screen that they will pay to have you in a hall with 20,000 people and that clearly alone is going to um, explode a lot of people's business models But um, but as you say all of that is yet to be worked out and maybe Maybe there will be some kind of hybrid possible. I don't know where you get beamed into a hall where people are standing a meter away from each other. I don't Ooh. know. Have you thought about hybrid models at all?
1: Gosh, that's an interesting one. Sort of virtual reality. Uh, yes, I, 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 <laughs> well, not exactly
0: a hologram, but I mean, you know, rather <laughs> than people sitting at home in front of their computers, maybe they get the, a bit of fun with a bit of socializing at a distance from each other and they get you on a giant screen. I don't know.
1: Oh, that would be interesting. Funnily enough, on on virtual reality, I remember um, Microsoft have now, apparently, I mean, I can't believe this is true, but they can now um, create almost high fidelity and what it would be like to stand in the middle at Lord's and have a game of cricket. And I mean, it is moving on at some rate of knots. I mean, that's the other disruption, by the way. I mean, it has nothing to do with COVID. But AI, uh, machine learning... Uh, these neural networks quantum computing i think that's going to have I, I, in fact for what it's worth i think we're living in an age of disruption i think we got yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche really but i do think in the coming uh, years we will just have to be psychologically and culturally equipped to deal with changes that are unforeseeable because they are based on Uh, technological change which is often very emergent it's not as it were planned in a top-down way it sort of bubbles up from innovation from different people in different contexts and I think we're just going to have to create systems that are more adaptable um, a sort of a psychology which is more adaptable again it's it's an obvious point but you know my grandfather's generation would work in a given job for life
0: Mm. I think
1: that's obviously not going to be the case in the coming Um, century Uh, so I think that there's a whole lot of quite interesting challenges I don't think we need to be pessimistic about them but they're definitely challenges
0: well it's it's interesting because I think you know obviously lots of people have been talking as you say about the disruption that we're going to face through the rise of the robot and AI and it seems to me that COVID is going to just accelerate an awful lot of those changes but possibly without the scrutiny on the AI front that might otherwise have been given. For example, if you're looking at apps for test and trace, not that we have one in this country, obviously, but if we were to have such a thing, um, then there are huge privacy issues and um, there are huge privacy issues with AI anyway. And it's possible that some of these will be rushed through um, for safety reasons without us really engaging with them in the way that we might want to do but i completely agree that we'll have to kind of speed up uh thinking about about all of this and it's interesting you mentioned uh, i i wondered how long it would take for you to, to, to mention um optimism because i then my next question was going to be <laughs> <laughs> the discussions you and i used to have about yeah, um, optimism wrong. and, <laughs> and <laughs> at one point i remember joking in the green room that i was going to write a book called the power of negative thinking yeah. um which i haven't got round to writing but certainly um if we look at the last few months, it looks as though a certain kind of lazy optimism from uh leader um has not been very helpful in this situation and I just wondered, I know you would describe yourself as an optimist and I wondered if you could. To find the kind of optimism that you sign up for that is appropriate at a time like this, or at any well, it, time for that matter.
1: It, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that very—I think our very first conversation—we kind of noticed a slight contrast between the two of us. Uh, <laughs> you you were—you were what we would call a realist and, and perfectly prepared <laughs> to confront the difficult obstacles in the journey <laughs> towards Brexit or anything else. And I would be saying, "Yes, but we've got a chance to get through it. You know, we're going to be okay." and i think there is, and you said no this is this is a this is a stupid approach you need to deal with the obstacles there's nothing wrong with negativity by the way i love the name of that potential title the power of negative thinking i think that would be a real <laughs> seller um i think the, the, the sort of the tone that you struck in the art of not falling apart was was brilliantly done and i you know well, thank you i agree that la- lazy optimism um is a hugely uh is a huge danger And I think if you look at, I mean, let me make a proposition. I think if you look around the world, it is not clear that the response to COVID has a pattern in terms of the difference between uh, autocratic and democratic regimes. Uh, China shut down. Uh, There have been some autocratic regimes that have dealt with this extremely well, but there have also been some democracies like South Korea that have dealt Mm -hmm. with it well. But I do think that there is a contrast between populists Mm. and non-populists. And I think perhaps one possible explanation for this is that populists don't like to say things that are unpopular, even when they are true. Uh, In other words, we don't want to admit that this has uh, exponentially dangerous consequences, this particular virus as it's emerging through January and early February. Um, because that's quite a difficult thing for my electorate to want to hear. So we're going to put our head in the sand and pretend it isn't there. Reality hits you eventually. And I think politics, business and science, in their different ways and with their different systems and their different mechanics, need to deal with reality as it is rather than as we hope it will be. Where I think optimism can help is when it's fused with realism. That's to say, when, for example, an entrepreneur hits a problem with a business idea, instead of throwing their hands up in the air and saying, Oh, gosh, it's not going to work, thinking a bit more creatively about how that obstacle might be overcome. And I think there is pretty good evidence that those people with some level of realistic optimism do a lot better than those who become, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, who, who tend to lack of the resilience that is so important for making anything uh, work in a complex world. And I think that that is what that's the sort of one of the ideas that I've tried to land in some of my books is that that there is a lot of power um, with that. Kind of, and for what it's worth, Christina, my next book's going to be about history, a very broad look at history. And I think mm-hmm. those cultures that create that sort of that set, I think culture really makes a difference. I think the industrial revolution, it Wasn't random that it happened in in the British Midlands. I think there were good cultural reasons for why it did and why it didn't happen in other parts of the world. And I think um, understanding those softer aspects of innovation and change is is quite important.
0: Fascinating. Um, well, as you know, uh, I I suppose I would call myself an energetic realist, and I'm a fan of Gramsci with his pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So I think mm. it's a, a, actually quite a quite a similar. Stance, but um, but I, it always irritates me hugely when someone announces they're an optimist and then kind of expects a round of applause. It's like, well, we don't really care what you are; it's what you do that matters, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, that's true, that's
1: true. Um, and I remember, uh, I, just, I remember hearing Blair say, "I'm an instinctive optimist." Tony Blair, hmm. I stood under um, La- uh, Labour banner in, in the parliamentary elections of two thousand and one, but I, I I don't want to overdo the psychology, but I do wonder whether. Blair's view that he could just, through his optimism and his sense of positivity and enthusiasm, could get things to happen that were practically not possible, lies mm-hmm. at the heart of some of the the most significant policy failings in his um, in his government. The obvious one, of course, is Iraq. Um, yes. and he just—I don't think under. I mean, one of the great problems is I think it, both the Foreign Office. And British intelligence, much like American intelligence, since the Second World War, has not really understood the nations that it engages with, and particularly tribal nations. You know, tribes disappeared from Britain. I mean, you'll know from your ancient history that tribes were were very common. In fact, they were the dominant social institution in Britain mm-hmm. um, before the Romans, during and after. But they kind of dissolved in the high Middle Ages for interesting but complex reasons, and so we lost our tribal psychology. You remember the Iceni in Bodicea? Um, that was yes. a tribe. And tribal, tribal psychology is quite sectarian. Um, you trust people within the tribe but tend to not trust people outside it. Um, Iraq has been characterized by tribes for 12,000 years, and I think we thought we could just invade and have democratic elections mm-hmm. and everything would be fine without really understanding the way that these institutions can be hijacked by sectarian interests. Um, and Blair thought he could. I, I think there was something in him that even when he heard these concerns about the invasion, he thought, you know, with his optimism, it would carry the day. And that's where it doesn't really work. As you said, it needs to be allied to some level of empirical understanding of the phenomena you're engaging with. And without that, it can be extremely dangerous.
0: I think that's absolutely right, and I think uh, there was something not dissimilar with David Cameron and the Brexit referendum. Right, I think absolutely. he never lost anything in his life, and it never occurred to him he would lose that, and um, uh, and he did clearly. By the way, um, this is why
1: there's a very good technique for 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 governments and for businesses to to conduct is often. Yeah. I think this is going to be, for what it's worth, I think that some of the stuff we're talking about will lie at the heart of the mistakes that SAGE has made in its advice to government during this crisis. But if you um, think about any government decision, any um, corporate decision, it's often the CEO, the prime minister, or the leader of a particular group who are pushing an idea. This is our strategy. This is what we're going to do. And they try and get it through with optimism and. Uh, painting a picture of what the world could look like if we go ahead with this plan, and a very good discipline for organisations to use, and I'd like to see it used in government, is something called the the, um, pre-mortem. So instead of everyone saying, oh, that's a good idea, or trying to come up with reasons to agree with their leader, which can happen unconsciously, they are required to imagine that the project has failed, the patient, as it were, has died, And they have to come up or generate plausible reasons for why it has failed. And because they're being judged on the plausibility of the reasons they're giving for failure, they're much more likely to be hard-nosed and realistic about the real dangers of what we're planning to do. And it's not necessarily to scupper the strategy, but to improve it before implementation. And if you imagine in Iraq, if there had been much more thought about the aftermath of invasion, can you imagine how different... That might have gone, even if they were adamant to get rid of Saddam, it would have had a very different um, reality, I think, in the aftermath. So that um, pre-mortem is quite a good way to, as it were, ally the two things we've been talking about, optimism and realism.
0: Mm, absolutely right. I mean, you know, the other way of summing that is hope for the best, prepare for the worst. You know, which is uh, what I could have helped with in the first place. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, not, I, that could it, be the
1: title of your next book: Paraphrased <laughs> think, <a paraplegic laughs> Thinking. Subtitle: uh, what was It? When, when, when hope the for the Best, the Worst. Yes,
0: yes yeah. a mass bestseller, I'm sure. um, um I want to I want to talk about rebel ideas in a moment but f- first of all I wanted to which is an absolutely brilliant book I I have to say all your books are brilliant clearly um but first of all I wanted to uh, go back to bounce which is where it all started um in which you talk about uh, the myth of talent and um how what all high achievers have in common is their effort generally about the 10 years or 10,000 hours of what you call purposeful practice um now you you know and you that's what your own experience was and uh you became britain's number 1 and uh have been incredibly successful at everything you've ever done did that did did you have that competitive spirit before you started out on your table tennis career or do you think it it developed as a result of Taking part in competitive sport and and how far has it driven you since?
1: Well, that's really kind, by the way. Thanks for those lovely um, words about the books, which I which I loved writing. I know you love love writing the art of not falling apart, which is which is which is probably better than my books. I should throw that in. That is not, absolutely not macho- true. Is... The, the, the listeners are going to be nauseated by this. Love it, <laughs> um, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, on, 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 the, on that thing nonsense, about nonsense like, by, I by I the way
0: but that's incredibly kind but carry on yes carry on
1: <laughs> but I um, I mean the interesting thing is when I look at my life I see a whole load of failures that were kind of as it were necessary to eventually succeed so I you know, messed up a hell of a lot I lost so many early matches in table tennis I was ranked below my brother for a very long time he used to beat me a lot and um, in journalism It was like beating my head against a brick wall to try and get in. The early columns weren't that great, but you kind of get better if you're given an opportunity. And I think the key thing, Christina, to answer your question directly is great mentoring. My parents Mm. were brilliant at saying, okay, so you messed up that line in the school play, which I did when I was nine years old, and (laughs) Joseph was amazing. But he said, Look, if you now decide that you're never going to get on stage again. and that you don't have you know, a knack for speaking in public, you're never, ever going to improve. You should see this as an opportunity. This is a wonderful thing. You failed in public, you messed up that line, you're still alive. What's the big deal? And I think my parents were just, you know, with the love that they had, combined with that message that the worst thing in life is to stay in your comfort zone, never take any risks. You won't ever fail, but you won't ever truly live. And I think that message both my mum and dad in their different ways. My dad probably more directly would make that point to me, um, but my mum would say it in a sort of her own way. And I, I, th- I if I had to thank anyone for, for, for that attitude, which I think is an asset for what it's worth, I think that mm. is a massive asset, um, I, I would thank my parents.
0: Mm, fascinating. And you, you you, talk in Rebel Ideas about immigrants and um how the the fact of that very often plays the outsider mindset in success you you mentioned that um, in 2017 43 percent of companies in the fortune 500 were founded or co-founded by immigrants or the children of immigrants and that immigrants were twice as likely to be entrepreneurs you also wrote a very moving piece in the sunday times the other day about your father's experience as an immigrant from pakistan in this country and how institutional racism blocked his progress in the civil service until he left it to become an academic is it how far do you think his immigrant experience has affected your own career i mean do you think for example the mentoring came out of that or or what's it's hard to answer that but what's your instinct about that?
1: No, I definitely think Dad Dad was very explicit. And it, I don't think it was just institu. I mean, yes, I think the racism was institutional at the civil service, but it was also quite personal and direct. Yeah. I mean, he heard um, nasty words and, and mm. uh, people could be quite brutal about it uh, when he arrived in the UK in the 1960s. So he he was very good at explaining to me that um, there would be setbacks and difficulties in, in a life of whatever kind I choose to live. Um, But it's really how you react to those that defines who you are. Um, That's a message he's still he's still saying, Christina, all these years on. He's, you know, he's still and it's a wonderfully empowering message. And I think that the great thing is if you have parents who who both tell you that you should give it a go, but also tell you that they'll love you, even if you mess up. Mm. It's a wonderful combination. If mm. that makes sense, you know, give it a go. And if you fail, we're going to love you anyway. And it's just, a, you know, I, I think in a funny kind of a way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you um, interview people who, who have been successful and or you talk to, you know, former prime ministers, it's often they say, you know what, I, 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 Balfour, you, know, Do you remember the prime minister early part of the last century, he said something really, like but- that,
0: but he was.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not saying you knew him personally, Christine. But he, I think there's a lovely phrase where he said, nothing matters very much and very few things matter at all. In yes. other words, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't get yeah. completely paranoid about it. You know, it's okay to give it a go. If it doesn't work out, it's not devastating, you know. As long as you're not taking risks with other people's lives, yeah. give it a go and learn the lesson and carry on absolutely right but but the other thing interestingly christina and it's quite topical at the moment is that my dad you know he's he's a passionate campaigner against racism uh you know he became a union shop steward in order to push this agenda but here's the thing he also loves britain he thinks it's an absolutely fantastic country um and i think there's quite an interesting irony there that i i worry that we're kind of drifting into because racism exists in this society, because uh, the nation has committed historic crimes, that it's a bad nation and it's a history we should be ashamed of. And it, But you, if you speak to immigrants, many immigrants like my dad and, and hundreds of thousands of others, they don't understand that narrative at all because they can see... This in context that, you know, he grew up in India where religious sectarianism has been a part of that nation since the very beginning. You know, he he grew up as a Muslim, a Shia, and the disputes Mm. between Shia and Sunnis would become murderous. Um, You know, nepotism and corruption is endemic in Pakistan. Mm. Um, So he sees Britain as not perfect, but far more fair and meritocratic and inclusive Um, than the society from which he came. And I think we should always remember that about Britain, that my own view, and you know, you may disagree with this completely, and that's fine, is that, you know, the fact that we came to economic supremacy globally after the Industrial Revolution, I think it was much better for the world that Britain became a dominant force than another nation that might have become dominant at that time because we already had some conception of the common law uh, although equality before the law was limited you know to men and property owners the circle of moral concern i think was wider in britain at that point than almost any other nation
0: yes very interesting and of course we'll be looking sort of looking at rise of China now as uh, wanting to overtake the US as the superpower and um, clearly many of its values and indeed of the US's values are not ones we would uh, in its current incarnation are not ones we'd want to be the predominant ones in the world. So, you know, these are very, very interesting questions. I mean, I'm also the daughter of an immigrant. My mother was Swedish and um, but it's kind of interesting to me because Sweden has had the one could almost use the word complacency that that britain has had until recently and now emerging from covid or uh having ploughed its own particular furrow the furrow that we were also going to plough until we changed changed our tack um there is actually quite a lot of doubt there so it's it's interesting to see what happens when i mean i, I i'm a big fan of doubt but doubt has to be uh, constructive and not crippling and um yeah. so i think that's part of what we're all Facing now, really. I mean, when you were talking about um point, yes,
1: just a quick quick point on China. So, I think you're right about China, Christina. But I would say that even though we don't, when you say we don't share their values, I think it's probably fair to say that there are many Chinese people who really do want democracy and and want to have a say in the way they're governed. The problem is the Communist Party, which is becoming ever more dictatorial, and I think is a is a threat to the wider world. Mm,
0: Absolutely, absolutely. One of the themes that emerges in all your books is breadth. And it's almost the opposite of a sports perspective. In in sport, you need supreme focus on the task in hand. Um, And then at the top, you have teams that support you in that, in marginal gains and so on. But you quote research that shows that research papers with the most impact are the ones that bridge traditional boundaries. And, And you quote Matt Ridley's phrase of ideas having sex. Uh, Clearly, it would be helpful if we had an education system that encouraged this kind of breadth. But what can we as individuals do to attain more of it for ourselves?
1: Yeah, and this has been an interesting change in science. So 100 years ago, um, you know, the really great hit papers were written from within a particular academic discipline. They're digging deeper into biology or to computation or to physics. But as you say, now most of the hit papers, as it were, um, fuse people from different academic specialisms and you get this ability to explain these complex phenomena by drawing upon both biology and computation and evolutionary psychology or whatever this whatever it happens to be and i think the ability i think what we need to do is 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 nothing wrong with having i mean it's a great thing to have depth of understanding in a particular area but most innovation now is fusing that expertise with the insights that might be given by somebody who thinks in a different way from you or has a different specialism. And I think that's that's true of all the big strategic challenges we face. Um, and so it's just that ability to step outside one's own silo, one's own milieu, one's own culture, and to be open from ideas from, as it were, outsiders. Hmm.
0: And how do you think we're going to face such enormous challenges now in relation to obviously health, how we deal with this pandemic, whether we find a vaccine, whether we find uh, antivirals or cocktails of antivirals that are effective. And of course, economically, Um, how do you think we can harness the kind of diverse thinking that you talk about in Rebel Ideas to get us out of this mess?
1: Well, I think we definitely need a a much stronger culture of diversity. There's just, I think, a basic blind spot that we think if you hire the best people and put them in the room, they'll come up with the best solution. And this is completely mistaken. If the best people went to the same universities, had the same experiences and think in the same way, they're really adding nothing to each other. Um, what you need are, are you know, bright and talented people who think differently, who think differently in ways that are useful. And if you can get optimize that, and that's obviously a longer discussion about how you identify people who are usefully different, depends a bit on the context, you get this incredible uplift in the collective intelligence of groups. And that's what I really, you know, that idea I try and land in as rigorous a way as possible in rebel ideas. I mean, there's a lot of storytelling there, too. But it's just very interesting that I think, you know, even corporations still have senior leadership teams who kind of have the same patterns of thinking and are missing Mm. the disruptions that are about to come along. And if they could just diversify a bit and have different voices, it would enable them to spot danger, to react effectively, and perhaps most importantly of all, to come up with really good new ideas.
0: Mm. And as individuals, we're all going to need to come up with plenty of new ideas now, because sadly, many people are going to lose their jobs already. Thousands of people have, and I know a few who have already. Um, What is your advice to someone who has just lost their job?
1: Well, I think it's the most important thing um, is to have a hard and realistic look at whether or not the job that one was previously doing has disappeared just in the context of the company that one was working for, or whether that particular business model has now been decimated or rendered redundant by, you know, I hate to use the phrase, but the new reality. And if it's the latter, you know, this ability to retrain, to rethink one's own life, I think is going to be very important. It's it's obviously much easier to say than to do. But if, if the evidence is even close to the truth that mo- most of the young generation growing up today will have at least five different careers over the course of their working lives, that ability to take a step back and say, OK, I'm doing something at the moment. It may well get superseded by new technology. Um, therefore, I'm going to have to start thinking about how I make the transition out of this. Now, I mean, take print journalism, take print journalism as an example Um, both of you and I work in print journalism we love print journalism it's it's a wonderful place to work but it's quite clear that print journalism is is diminishing and will eventually die and I think I think the journalists who are going to transition effectively are the ones who have been thinking for a long I mean you're doing exactly that now by hosting a podcast you're broadening your professional outlook and I think that is going to be crucial, not just in print journalism, but in almost every sector, that ability to say, where is the world going? Mm. Is the skill that I have at the moment going to be made redundant by this these inexorable forces of progress? And if so, what are the meaningful transitions I can make that will give me the interesting work that I want, the meaning that I crave, and you know, hopefully a decent uh, wage at the same time?
0: Mm, Absolutely right. And I mean, for example, with uh, youngsters who want to go into the arts or the live arts, uh, clearly in the very short term, that's going to be very tough. And lots of people in theatres have already lost their jobs. Do you, I mean, I think what you've just said partly answers the question, but of course, there's a massive element of uncertainty here because we just don't know what will happen in terms of what will be will or won't be safe and how society can function in the next few years. What would your advice be to a youngster just starting out who'd set their heart on a career in an industry that they can't currently pursue?
1: What's well, something like
0: theatre, um, uh, theatre, or performing arts? Well, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, fully understood. I mean, the great thing about the about the arts is you'll probably know that people with a really strong background in creativity in the performing arts and coming up with stories, those skills are eminently transferable. Um, So I think that it isn't a bad thing to have a dream of becoming an actor. I'm sure that film and and theater will exist in some form anyway, but Mm -hmm. those, there are certain skills that you develop that are transferable. And I, you know, I think of sport, I, knew that I was trying to become a top table tennis player, there was no guarantee I'd make it. But I did, I think, have some understanding, probably my father, again, giving me good guidance, that some of the things I was learning through table tennis, the connections I was making, may prove valuable. And I never gave up, of course, on the schoolwork, that was also very important. Um, So I think that ability to, to dare to dream, whilst having a fallback position, these two things are not contradictory in fact if you look at the great yeah. entrepreneurs they're not only people who take risks but they're brilliant at hedging risk brilliant hedgers of risk mean, when you think of branson starting virgin atlantic you know he didn't bet his entire life on that company you know he leased that first plane he had a really good exit route if that didn't go well and i think the ability to take and hedge risk um there's some great um academic papers on this now that uh um, the, the the sort of the leading entrepreneurs are very, very good at knowing how to hedge. Mm,
0: fascinating, really fascinating. Now I'm going to let you go in one minute, but first of all, if you had one hope of what emerges from this pandemic, what would that be?
1: <sighs> That's an interesting one, Christina. Um I think one of the hopes is I mean, there's so many different things. I I guess you're in the same place. I think there's so many different things that I'd love to see off the back of it. But if I can connect it again to to the idea that we talked about a few minutes ago about the importance of diversity. If people Mm. left this pandemic and said, you know what, we need to build a new kind of society. And we need to create institutions that give everybody an opportunity to progress, where there are paths of people to get to the top it's not just all about having the right networks or knowing the right person this is something available to everyone I think we'd get more diversity as a consequence of that truly meritocratic society but in the absence of that which I think is a long-term aim um, just for people to think a bit more creatively and strategically about how diversity matters and how to inject some more of it into our own lives. Mm,
0: Wonderful couldn't agree more really wonderful matthew thank you so much it's such a pleasure to talk to you again i can't wait for the day when we can meet for dinner i
1: agree. I, <laughs> and... it I enjoyed it enormously i hope people were not uh... it was great and I, I know that there was a lot of chumminess in there, but i hope i hope that was all right and um i love doing the podcast and uh, thank you for having me on
0: thank you so much for listening to this podcast If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.